0: Bibles, if you would, tonight, please, and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and we we are ready to begin the fourth chapter tonight. And this fourth chapter marks a significant division in the book because the first three chapters have been very heavily weighted towards doctrine. And as we come to the fourth chapter, uh, we come to a practical side of God's Word. We've had the opportunity in those first three chapters to study some great doctrines, And in many cases, some difficult things. And most of the things that we talked about in those first three chapters are are very strenuously argued. There's a lot of opposition, arguing back and forth on, on which way those things should go. Some of them are hard, as I mentioned, like election, predestination. And for many people, there's a lot of confusion about those things. But there's also a lot of confusion about other doctrines. There's confusion on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. There's confusion about what church doctrine is all about. But doctrine is not something that we can just lay aside because we have differences and no longer talk about those things. We still have to look into the doctrines of the Word. And I hope that it becomes apparent to you as we preach the message tonight that the practical side of things and the doctrinal side of things have to be balanced against each other and both very clearly have to be taught. But fundamental to our understanding of what we're to be as Christians and what God expects from us uh, is to have right doctrine. And the transition from chapter 3 to chapter 4 helps us to get from that doctrinal side to the practical, but we'll never forget uh, the doctrinal side of these things. So this evening, I want to consider just the very first verse of chapter 4. And if you'd stand with me, please, we're just going to read this one verse, and I'm going to preach from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 tonight, where Paul says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to be here tonight. Lord, help us to understand your word. Help us to uh, take this message and apply it to our hearts. And Lord, may we know more about you and come to love you better. And we just give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. My subject tonight is Walk Worthy. In verse number one of the chapter here, Paul says, walk worthy. And as we consider the subject tonight, there has to be uh, some thought given to what Paul has said before this in the preceding chapters. And I would say that if you have grasped Those last few verses of chapter 3 that we talked about so long, we were talking about that great prayer of Paul and the different steps that have to be taken to be filled with the fullness of God. And I think if you have assimilated all of that information, and you understand it, that you are on the way to a place where you can walk worthy. I want you to notice how the fourth chapter begins because Paul starts with, therefore. He says, Therefore. Having the Bible divided into chapters has really been a great blessing for us. Uh, I told you once before that when uh, we first, the Bible was first given to us that the books were long manuscripts and there weren't any chapter divisions, there weren't any verse divisions. And along about the 13th century, the, the Bible was divided up into chapters. And then in the 16th century, it was divided into verses. And many times, chapter divisions and, of course, verse divisions are, are very helpful for us. But also sometimes they, they lead us to believe that when we move from one chapter to the next that we may not be talking about the same subjects and maybe we're starting a new thought and things aren't connected at all. And so that's why we have a word like therefore in uh, chapter uh, 4, verse number 1 because that tells us that this information is uh, connected to what comes before it. And so there is a conclusion to be drawn here. Paul says therefore and the conclusion in the preceding, of the preceding paragraph is the fact that we should walk worthy. Now, that's what I want to describe to you in the message this evening. We're going to talk about the connection between chapters 1 through 3 and the command that Paul says to walk worthy in chapter 4, verse number 1. There are three premises that I want you to to give you tonight on this subject. Uh, Three things we want to talk about. Number one is that right practice is based on right principle. And I think that's a very simple concept for us to understand. And that, that is before you do something right, the principles that govern what you're about to do very clearly have to be understood. And you can think of it this way. If you were going to fly an airplane, then very clearly you have to understand principles of gravity. You can't get an airplane off the ground unless you understand that gravity is a force to be reckoned with. And unfortunately, many times in the Christian life, people think they can just sail off into their Christian life and they can enjoy the blessings and the security that they have in Christ. They can have the prosperity, perhaps, that they think comes along with Christianity. They can have the assurance and the ability, uh, perhaps, to be unfazed by all the troubles that are around them. And they think they can just go off into that without consideration of all the principles that actually make those things work. And so we have to know those principles. And the Bible outlines a method that leads us to a higher Christian life, a method that leads us to working, uh, to walking worthy, and the path to the higher Christian life always leads right through the doctrines of God's Word. You can't ignore right doctrine and right interpretation of doctrine and expect to end up in right practices. The other day... Uh, Brother Lino was in my office, and sometimes he stops by to have a chat every now and then. And we were talking over a few different things. And I remember that we were talking about the day that Jesus uh, told the disciples to go find the donkey that he was going to ride in, on, in into Jerusalem. And Jesus told the disciples, he said, you go find this donkey. It's going to be tied up in a certain place. And if there's anyone there who asks you why you're doing this, you tell them that the Lord has need of this. Well, sure enough, the disciples went to look for that donkey and when they loosed it, when they tried to take it, there were some men standing there who inquired, what are you doing? And they said, the Lord has need of this. And without saying another word, they permitted the disciples to take that donkey. Well, Brother Lino commented about that and he said, you know, that's amazing because Jesus knew that those guys would be standing there. He already told the disciples exactly what to tell them, and then he caused those men to give up that donkey without any kind of a fuss. Well, I thought that was a good point. As we were discussing further, I remarked to him that when you begin to understand the doctrines of God's grace, that what it does, it completely changes your worldview. You see that God is in control of everything, and not only do you see him in control, but you want God to be in control. There's no complaint because God is controlling things. So how you live your life and how you look at your role in the world is always relative to the truth that we find in God's word. Truths and principles that have already been established. And so because of that, it's evident that we can't do without right doctrine. And if a preacher decides that he's going to ignore doctrine and preach simply practical things, then his practicality becomes overbalanced against the doctrine. And what happens is the practices end up being wrong. And that's why I believe that the doctors of fundamentalism many times are guilty of malpractice when they handle the Word of God. So right practice is based on right principle. Now, first, as we think about that, a worthy walk is a balanced walk because what can happen is that there's also the danger of overbalancing doctrine or being on the doctrinal side and not being balanced out with the practical side. And so there are many people who think that a monastery or going into a convent or secluding yourself in some kind of an enclave is the answer to this. And what you do is you just spend all of your time learning doctrine. You learn all the doctrines of God's word and you stay right there. But the Bible teaches us that without applying the doctrine, we'll never be led to a higher Christian life. There has to be application of what we learn in order for us to walk worthy. And so the Christian life has to be a balance between these two things. You come to church to learn the doctrines of God's Word. You get the doctrinal side of it. But then it's your duty and obligation to go out and on your job and in your activities of life to implement the doctrines that you've learned. But one thing that you'll always learn about it is that you can't get to the practical side without going through the doctrinal. So some of you might wonder, well, why does Pastor Smith even think about starting a series on systematic theology? Why does Pastor Smith talk about election or predestination? Or why do I spend several sermons talking about uh, the church and all those different kinds of doctrine? And you might be bored by it all. I don't know. You might get bored by it. But if you don't get the teaching right here in the church, friends, you won't get it anywhere. If you don't learn the doctrine here, where are you going to learn it? And what's going to happen is that with the passing of one or two generations, the doctrines go along with it. And nobody knows about the doctrines anymore. And you know, friends, very sadly, that's happened to us. And that's we notice that uh, the doctrines of Berean Baptist Church have really gone out of favor with some Baptists. A few weeks ago when Brother Furman was here from Gospel Missions, I was talking to him about Harry Buhrer. Of course, Harry Buer is the one who founded this church, and I might also add that it was Harry Buer, and not someone else who lately has tried to take the credit for it, but Harry Buhrer is the one who founded our church. And I was talking to Brother Rex about this and, and I was asking him some different questions about how the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches started churches, uh, what their doctrines were, especially back in that time, and he told me that going back to that time it would be very hard to find any Baptist preacher in the in the GRBC who didn't believe in the doctrines of grace. But you know what's happened in the ensuing years? Those doctrines have been ignored and substituted For them is what we might call shields of brass. Now, once upon a time, Baptist people were holding up the shields of gold like, like Solomon had. But unfortunately, there's a new king behind the pulpit and he holds up the shields of brass. But here's what we need. We need a balance of right doctrine and practical Christian living in order to have right practice. Now, let me add this also to our understanding that a worthy walk is a separated walk. And that should be self-evident because if Paul makes a statement that we're to walk worthy, then that must mean that there was a former lifestyle that we were walking in that wasn't worthy. There has to be a change here somewhere. Something has to be different about the lifestyle that we live now than the one that we had before we became Christians. And here's where some people go wrong and they say, Well, okay, well, all this means is that you're to let Christ live through you. You're really not to do anything, you don't have to change anything, but Christ is going to come in and he's going to live through you. He's going to take over your life and he's going to do everything that he wants to do through you. But I want to explain something to you about that. Uh, actually, we're talking here about the doctrine of sanctification. And in sanctification, there is a sense when it, that it is an instantaneous process. And that is when you become saved, God claims you as his own, you become separated to him, you're holy in that sense, you belong to him, and you'll always be God's child. And when you talk about that, you're speaking about positional sanctification. But most of the time when the Bible speaks of sanctification, it's not talking about positional sanctification. It's talking about our practical sanctification. And that is what we call progressive sanctification, And what that means is you don't get it all at once. It's it's not instantaneous. You get sanctified as you walk through this life, as you walk worthy, as Paul says here. So this is why Paul says, walk worthy. That's why we find him reprimanding in some places. It's why we find him encouraging in other places. It's why we find the other writers of the New Testament saying the very same things, as Paul says, to watch our Christian life, look out how we go, because our sanctification is something that has to work outward from the inside. Outward from what's in us. The change that's taken place in our hearts. So when you apply the right principles of doctrine, when you gain that knowledge, that sanctifies you. Here's what Jesus said in John seventeen seventeen: Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So it couldn't be said any more clearly than that, than what you know about Doctrine and right principles will lead you to a sanctified, separated life. Now let me go on to the second premise of the message, and that is right conception is based upon right character. And what I mean by that is people will perceive that you are a Christian by your character. Maybe you heard about a single guy who was having trouble getting second dates. And he read all the books that he could read. He got all the information that he could on, on women and how to make women become interested in you. And so he learned that to be, uh, to be interesting in women, to, to women, you had to find out what they were interested in. And you had to become what they were interested in. So he went to a baseball game and he sat down to a, a beautiful single girl. And he looked at her and he thought, there could be some possibilities here. And so he began to talk to her, and he said, Well, I see you like baseball. What kind of men do you like? And she thought for a moment, and she said, Well, actually, I like Native American men. She said, I like Jewish men, and I like just just good old boys. And he said, Well, let me introduce myself. My name is Geronimo Goldstein. My friends call me Bubba. (laughs) We decided this past week that when I need to tell a joke, that Les Crandall would come up here, and I'd stop, and he'd tell it for me. But there are a lot of people who pretend to be Christians. A lot of them. And their daily lifestyles are a demonstration of what they believe about Christianity. And if somebody comes and says to you, I am a Christian, look at their lifestyle. Look what they're doing before you ever believe it. Because there are many Christians or people who call themselves Christian that when you look at them, people are going to get the wrong idea of what Christianity is about. Now let me show you two aspects of real Christian character. First... A worthy walk appears becomingly to others. There are a couple of meanings to this word worthy in verse number one. One of those meanings is balance. And we've already talked about balance. But the second one is becoming. And that word is translated in Philippians one twenty-seven or used in this way. It says, Only let your conversation, and that means your manner of life, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. And what that means, in the best way possible, the very best of your ability, your life should cast a good reflection on the Savior. The way that you live ought to be equal to this calling that you've been given. Now, we could state it simply like this. You need to maintain the dignity of your office. You ever heard of that concept before? I mean, you know one of the reasons why that I stand up here and I preach to you in a coat and tie and I don't preach to you in a t-shirt or blue, with blue jeans and, and holes in them? Because I want to maintain the dignity of the office. I'm preaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. I represent God's holy word as I stand up here. And so I want to look that part. You remember when the queen of Sheba visited Solomon? She heard about the wisdom and the wealth of Solomon, and she had to come see it for herself. I want to read a little bit of this to you in 1 Kings chapter 10. Beginning in verse number four, it says, And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built and the meat of his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendants of his ministers and their apparel and his cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Verse seven, How be it? I believed not the words until I came and mine eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and thy prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Now I want to skip down to verse 9 and her comment about this. She says, blessed be the Lord thy God who delighteth in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel. You see, because Solomon's courts and his servants and the clothing that they wore and all of that were just top-notch, What did she do? She blessed the Lord. She looked at that and she thought that is a good reflection on the God of Solomon. And folks, when people see the right things in you, they think the right things about the Savior. Let me give you another example. And this one we have right here in in our congregation tonight. You know, I walk down here and there's two little boys right here. One's conked out right now. Two five-year-old boys... Here's another one almost asleep over here. But these little fellows, you know, they come to church and they sit here and I never heard a peep out of them. Who is reflected in that behavior? Somebody save something? Their parents are reflected in their behavior. And if they misbehave, who is that reflecting on? Uh, once again, their parents. You know, I, I love this, this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. I put it on your listening sheet tonight. He said, the honor of the family is in the hands of the child. Did you know that children have more power than you can possibly imagine? These are just children. They're just little kids. But what people think about Brian and Brett has a whole lot to do with how those children act. And you know what they think? They think, wow, they must be pretty good parents. They're good parents. Look at the way their children act. Now, put the spiritual application to it. You're God's child. And when you act like God's child, what do people think? What an awesome parent God must be. Look at this God that they serve. And so it all reflects on the Lord Jesus Christ. So the honor of God's family is also in the hands of his children. Think about that. How you act reflects upon your church, reflects upon your God. So, Paul is telling us here that we need to walk worthy because we've got to be becoming in what we do to the Savior. Then secondly, a worthy walk appeals invitingly to others. I'm going to keep this very short and simple for you. Do I want to come to your house when I know that your kids are going to terrorize me? Do I want you to come to my house when I know that your kids are going to turn over the coffee table, they're going to step on the dog's tail, they're going to run through the house knocking things off the walls, do I want you to come to my house? The answer is no. I remember when I was a kid, my, my dad, oh, my dad knew, I think, every Baptist preacher in America. And half of them had been in our home at one time or another. And I remember especially or specifically one preacher's kid that I hated to see come to our house. I knew when he came to our house that, that I mean, he was a whirlwind. He was going to play with my toys and they would get broken and he was going to ride my bike, and he was going to wreck it. I mean, it happened every time. And so I hated to see him come. There was nothing that made me want him to come to our house, and nothing that made me want to go to his house. And you know that's true of Christians? It really is. The way Christians act sometimes is there's nothing that causes people out there to want to come to our house. And when you go to visit them, and you ask them to come to our house right here at Berean Baptist Church... Hopefully it's not bad here. But they think, why? What's attractive there for me? I see the way that you act. I see what your life is. Why would I want to do that? And they're not interested at all in coming to our house. So here's what we need to understand, folks. And you need to get this because you may not agree with me on it. But your salvation is not just for you. Your salvation is for everybody. And I don't mean that everybody's going to get saved because you're saved. What I mean is that God has left you here... To be an example of his handiwork. And that's how we ought to live. Now much of the time of course when we're speaking about scripture. We go back up here to Ephesians 1 verse 4. And we emphasize the first part of the verse. And it says and according hath chosen us and him before the foundation of the world. And we get into our election and our predestination. And trying to understand how all that works. But then we forget about the last half of the verse. And the last half says that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And so this is what walking worthy is. It's to be a good reflection on our Savior. So our lives appear becomingly to others. Now let me go to the third premise of the message. Number three is that right conversion is based on right calling. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. And the question I think that needs to be asked as we read that is who called whom? Well, there's an inseparable connection here between the doctrine that we find in chapters 1 through 3 and what we find in chapter 4. And the connection I've already said is the word therefore. Because of what's happened before, therefore. But how is it that some people can understand who called whom, but yet they can't agree with the doctrines of grace in those first three chapters? They acknowledge that God does the calling, and I would say that that in itself would tell us that God initiates it. And if God initiates it, and the Bible says that we don't seek it, how could it be based on anything other than the pure pleasure of God's will? You see, the therefore of chapter 4 is rooted in the doctrines of chapters 1 through 3. The scripture says in chapter 2, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sin. And so it is the spiritual death or that condition of every Christian that necessitates God's call just like when Lazarus was called out of the tomb. Jesus had to call him first. He couldn't come out on his own. So let's note this, that a worthy walk is initiated by God. Three times in three chapters, Paul brings up the subject of God's calling. Chapter 1, verse 4. Chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter 2, verse number 1. All teach the necessity of God's calling. And God initiates the call. Now, here's the purpose in God's call there are many people who believe that God calls and this is just a general thing. And what I mean is the gospel is preached to everyone, the gospel goes out to every person, and the response to the gospel is simply, does a person want to believe or do they not want to believe? And then there are some people who say that there's, there's only one hope, or there I should say there is no more hope of the gospel for one person than there is for another person. In other words, the gospel is not particular to anyone. And so, the, 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 the only conclusion that you could come to from that kind of thinking is that God has not done anything individually for anyone. You're as likely to believe as not to believe. Well, I certainly, myself, I believe that Jesus died for me personally. I mean, I, I believe that he had me in mind. I'm going to preach about that a few weeks down the road But I believe that God did something for me individually. I mean, I just wasn't somebody out in the mass of humanity that didn't know about. Jesus Christ knew about me. Well, is there only a general call for people to the gospel? Well, certainly there is a general call because the gospel goes out, all can hear it, all can believe it. But is there only a general call? Well, let's think about Romans chapter 8 for just a moment. You're familiar with this in chapter 8, verses 29 through 30. It says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. But notice verse 30 says, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now I want you to notice in verse number 30 that the calling is placed before justification. The scripture says, and whom he called, them he also justified. And so whoever is called in this particular way, according to this kind of calling in this verse, whoever is called in that way is justified. So what does that tell us? It tell us God, tells us that God has a purpose in calling, that it will infallibly or inevitably result in the person's justification. And if he's justified, that means he's also saved. So the calling results in his salvation. Do you know what we call that? Irresistible grace. When God calls that way, it always results in hearing and belief. It never ends any other way. So why are we called? We're called to believe in Jesus Christ. So we go back to our text in verse 1. It can't mean here that we receive our vocation before we receive our calling. We are called to the vocation. Calling comes first. And so therefore, because of our calling in Christ, we're to walk worthy. Now listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He said, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I don't know how many times Paul has to say this before Baptist people start to believe it. Where does faith in Christ come from? It comes from the power of God. What is the demonstration of the Spirit? Raising dead sinners into spiritual life. That doesn't have anything to do with you. You have no power over that. It's the power of God through His Holy Spirit. You're brought to life in order to believe, and all of that is initiated by God it can't come any other way. So if God initiates it, that means that salvation can never be be you having a part and God having a part. So does one person have more hope of the gospel than any other person? Not to his sensibilities, there's nobody who knows that, but certainly to God's, because God knows exactly who he calls and who he will justify, and God knows exactly who's going to be in heaven. It's evident to us that God hasn't called everybody in this way because if he had, everybody would be saved because as we read in Romans 8 verse 30, the calling results in the person's justification. Now that ought to bring us to this inevitable conclusion. Paul says, therefore, and here's the conclusion, a worthy walk is indicative of grace. If you walk worthy... It's only because of God's grace in you. And you don't have any power to work worthy, to walk worthy, unless God's grace does enable you. You see, here's what happens when you get saved you still have the old human nature, you still have that old fleshly nature, and it'll be with you until the day that you die. And you don't have the power to overcome that fleshly nature unless God's grace enables you to overcome it. So, how do I come from death to life? By God's grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. How do I walk a worthy life? By God's grace. Salvation is never in us, it's always by God's grace. Now, the first part of the verse says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, Paul says, and when he uses those words like that, prisoner of the Lord, that, that's not just a metaphor. Now, certainly, Paul talks many times about him being the bond servant of Christ. But he's more than just a prisoner of the Lord in that way. He is actually a prisoner. He, he's in prison in Rome. And folks, no prisoner writes what Paul writes unless he has the enabling grace of God. So walking worthy will never happen unless we have right doctrinal truths right beside the practicality of what we do for Christ. Let me close the message tonight by quoting from James Montgomery Boyce. He said... Doctrine without practice leads to bitter orthodoxy. It gives correctness of thought without the practical vitality of the life of Christ. Practice without doctrine leads to aberrations. It gives intensity of feeling, but it is feeling apt to go off in any and often wrong direction. What we need is both, as Paul's letters and the whole of Scripture teach us. There's great danger in taking the Scriptures out of context. Do you wonder why I preach verse by verse through the book of Ephesians? Why do I preach verse by verse through the book of John? Because of context. When you take God's word out of its context, all kinds of wrong practices result. So we study the word of God, I think, as God intended us to study, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, keeping all of God's principles and all of God's words in its proper context. Doctrine out of context leads to wrong practice. So Paul's invocation to us, walk worthy. Walk as it becomes the Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask you, Lord, you help us to understand these things better. Our dependence is all upon you and none of ourselves. There is just nothing that we can do for ourselves. We thank you, Lord, for your grace. And may we understand very clearly that all... Glory belongs to you. Blessing this invitation tonight. Speak to our hearts. Draw us close. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.